Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. All right, let's get started this morning. And uh, I'm going to take us to begin with to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 17, verse 20. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming. And he answered, The kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. You can't change the world, but you can change your life. That's the sermon. You can't change the world, but you can change your life. That's that's the sermon title, but it's also the sermon. You can't change the world, but you can change your life. Jesus had one message. It's the kingdom of God. It is the only thing he ever talked about, the kingdom of God. He announced it over and over and over that the kingdom of God is at hand. But despite the fact that it's the only thing that Jesus ever talked about, he never defined it. He never gave a clear definition. The kingdom of God is this. He never spoke like that. He said the kingdom of God is like. It's like. Jesus would announce the eminence of the kingdom of God, and then he would give a parabolic metaphor. He would speak in parables. He would say the kingdom of God is like seed. It's like yeast. It's like a feast. The kingdom of God is like finding a lost coin, a lost sheep, a lost son. The kingdom of God is like a buried treasure. The kingdom of God is like a priceless pearl. The kingdom of God is like a master forgiving a billion-dollar debt. The kingdom of God is like a crazy vineyard owner who, through scandalous generosity, decides on his own to pay people that only worked one hour as much as he paid the people that worked all day. Well, whatever the kingdom of God, that is the reign of God, the rule of God, the government of God, whatever the kingdom of God is exactly, it's clearly something radical and something other than the way we typically imagine the world has to be. And this is why, as Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God is within grasp, within reach, it's at hand, it's coming near, It's why the reaction to that announcement was so passionate, either in resistance or in reception. People either heard it in such a way that they were joyful and they said, at last the change has come, or, uh uh-oh, the change has come, and they resisted it. Those who hold power, political power, economic power, religious power, uh, may 
find the kingdom of God threatening if they don't think about it right, and thus unwelcomed. But the poor and humble, the merciful and prayerful, the righteous and just, they will say, this is what we've been looking for. This is what we've been waiting for. And they will welcome and receive the kingdom of God with great joy. Now, this is more or less what Jesus' parables are mostly all about. About the various responses to the arrival of the kingdom of God. Jesus announces the nearness of the kingdom of God and then gives parables and says it's like this. Then one day, a group of Pharisees. Remember, Pharisees, Pharisees are not clerics. It is, it is a lay movement. They would have priests who were Pharisees. There would be clerics within it, but it's broader than that. It's a religious political movement that was about 150 years old at the time of Jesus that began as a kind of uh, resistance movement to enforced Hellenization. And, and, but then it had kind of morphed into a take-back-Israel-for-God movement, and it was characterized by a lot of self-righteousness, a lot of judgmentalism. You know about the Pharisees. So one day the Pharisees, because Jesus is going on and on about the kingdom of God, it's the only thing he ever talks about, and uh, the Pharisees said, well, when is it coming? You keep talking about the kingdom of God, when does it show up? When does the kingdom of God come? Fair question. Let's look at that again. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered... The kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. Hmm. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. This is another example of Jesus always being full of surprises. Never quite exactly saying what we expect him to say. Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God. But when pressed about the timing of it, Jesus says, well, the kingdom is coming, but not obviously. It's coming, but it's not obvious. You can't, you'll never be able to say, right there it is, there it is, there it is. Look, kingdom of God right there. Jesus says, no. It's coming, but it's not obvious. You can't say, here it is, there it is. And then he says, for in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Or, the kingdom of God is within you. See, here's the, here's the deal with that. With Luke 17, 21. We're not sure how to translate that from the Greek to the English. Does Jesus mean the kingdom of God is among you, or does he mean the kingdom of God is within you? I studied this all week long. I read all of the scholars. I read all of the best Greek biblical scholars, and both arguments are persuasive, and both sides are persuaded. So I just say it's both. I think it works like this. The kingdom of God is right here. It's within you. But then the kingdom hearted gather together. And then we can say the kingdom of God is among us. 
Right? The kingdom of God begins right here when the king gets enthroned upon the throne within our heart. The kingdom of God comes, and the kingdom of God is within me, within you. But when we come together, the kingdom of God is among us. All right, that's how I think that works. The kingdom of God is at hand, but it's not obvious. And this is, this is a problem. So Nicodemus, he was the most notable teacher of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee, but not a Pharisee, if you know what I mean. He belonged to the movement, but he apparently didn't have those toxic characteristics that came to uh, be associated with Pharisees, with their judgmentalism and their self-righteousness. And so Nicodemus, he's a scholar, a rabbi, and he comes to Jesus by night. That is, he comes in secret, because this is a little bit controversial to be seen associating with this radical young rabbi out of Galilee. Nicodemus comes to him. He's, he's, he's an important teacher. And he comes to Jesus by night, and they begin their conversation. And then at one point, Jesus simply says, Look, Nicodemus, unless you're born from above, unless you're born again, you will never be able to perceive the kingdom of God, even though it's right here. Even though it's here, you won't recognize it. You won't see it. Jesus is not saying, Nicodemus, unless you pray a sinner's prayer, you won't go to heaven when you die. That's not what their conversation is about. It's about the kingdom and how it comes. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're going to have to take it from the top, be born from above, be born again, rethink everything, you're going to have to let go of your assumptions or you will not perceive the kingdom of God even though it's right here. And to his credit, Nicodemus does rethink everything. And he's with Joseph of Arimathea on Good Friday to give Jesus a kingly burial because they believe he's the Messiah. This issue of being able to perceive the kingdom of God shows up with John the Baptist. Among those born of women, there is not a risen or greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus says about him. And yet, John struggles with this. So John, you know, he's the, he's the forerunner. He prepares the way for Messiah. A lot of people were thinking, he's the, he's the one, he's the Messiah. And he says, I am not. It's not me. It ain't me you're looking for. <laughs> no, 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 it ain't me. He says, I'm, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm the one who's preparing the way. And so he's preparing the way for Messiah. He even points Jesus out as the Messiah to some of his disciples. Behold the Lamb of God. That's the one. So John does his thing. He prepares people for the coming of Messiah, the king who will bring the kingdom. And then John gets arrested. By, by Herod, and he's thrown in the dungeon. And he's kind of just languishing there. And he's kind of, he's, you know, when does it happen? I mean, when are they going to bust me out of here? When does the revolution begin? When does the kingdom come? Because surely if the kingdom comes, I'm not going to be in jail. And so he sends two messengers to Jesus. And they say, hey, John wants to know, are you the one... 
Or do we look for someone else? Because we thought you were going to bring the kingdom, so where is it? And Jesus said, well, you tell John what you see. The people are getting well. People are coming to life. People are having good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended at me. John was almost offended because the kingdom didn't come like he imagined it would. An overthrow of the Herodian dynasty and an enforcement of all that he believed to be right. It didn't come that way. It's just a bunch of people getting well and finding new life and hearing good news. The kingdom of God comes, but it comes quietly, not sensationally. Jesus says, oh, it's, 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 like, it's, like, it's like a farmer. He goes out and he sows his seed and he goes to bed. When he gets up in the morning, and he goes to bed, and he gets up in the morning, and he goes to bed, and he gets up in the morning, and eventually the crops begin to grow. He doesn't know how. It grows on its own. Understand, you do not have to have a degree in molecular biology to get a garden up. You just got to put some seed in the ground, go to bed, and get up. Yeah, hoe it now and then. But the seed will do its thing without you even knowing how it works. That's what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. He says, it's like, it's like the smallest of seeds. It's like a mustard seed. It's like a tiny mustard seed. Just a little speck of a thing. And yet, when it's sown, give it time, it'll grow up, become a tree, and the birds of the air will make its nest, their nests in its boughs. So that's what the kingdom of God is like. He says, oh, the kingdom of God is like, it's like a woman working some yeast into three measures of dough so that the bread will rise. How's the kingdom of God come? Like crops grow, like a tree grows, like bread rises. Slow and quiet. It's from Jesus that we learn you can't change the world, but you can change your life. If you say, all right, Jesus, I'm saved now, I'm baptized, I'm signed up, I'm ready to be your disciple, let's go change the world. I want to be a world changer, Jesus, let's go change the world. And Jesus will say something like, oh, you want to change the world? That's what I'm signed up for. I want to change the world. Jesus will say, all right, start right, right here. Start right here. Start changing the world right here. Make sure the kingdom is within you. And that's when we have to ask, are we offended? Because come on, man, I want to be a hero. I want, to, I, want to, I want to be involved in some heroic cause. Changing the world. World changers for Christ. It's got a nice ring to it. it makes It feeds my ego. And then you tell me, right here, kind of offended by that. You can't change the world. But you can change your life. When we're driven by, when we're driven by heroic and probably uh, quixotic, you know that word, as as to do with quixote. 
When we're driven by heroic and probably quixotic quests to change the world, we focus on all that is wrong with the world and thus needs to be changed out there. Out there. We mostly become enraged protesters energized by the spirit of accusation. Decrying what is wrong with them out there is the energy of accusation, and you know what spirit that is, don't you? It's not the Holy Spirit. That is the spirit of advocacy. An outward focus of rage, absent, quiet, deep, inner reflection, inevitably leads to self-righteousness. Because we ignore everything in here. We don't pay any attention to what's in here. All we know is there's stuff out there that's wrong. And I'm going on Facebook to tell the world about it so I can be a world changer. Right? I mean, how many of you know there are things wrong with the world? How many can come up with 10 of them in one minute? Of course you can. And we focus on what's wrong with the world out there. And we go on Twitter and we say, okay, world changer at work. Decrying what is wrong with them out there. It's very seductive. It's certainly how we join our crowd, our angry crowd. But here's the secret. Jesus never leads a crowd. Always a little flock, no matter how numerous. Crowds turn into mobs. The crowd is untruth. The majority is almost always wrong. Um... So it's easy to get sucked into just being part of a particular angry crowd. And, you know, there's, there's both. I mean, everybody agrees with what's wrong most of the time, or at least some of the things, but nobody agrees on how to go about setting it right. And so you have to pick a team, and one team is angry at the other team. It does nothing to change the world. At least it's not the Jesus way of changing the world, that's for sure. You've heard this story probably. You know, G.K. Chesterton great Christian writer in the early 20th century in England, just known for, you know, his one-liners. He was just the best. And uh, the London Times asked notable writers to submit an essay on the theme, What is Wrong with the World? And so G.K. Chesterton submitted his essay to the London Times. Dear sirs, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. 1 John chapter 4, the aged apostle says, We have seen and do testify that the Father has sent His Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us, God is love. You need some good news today? Here's the good news. The world will be saved. The world will be saved because God is love. The world will be saved because God so loves the world. The world will be saved because God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, 
but to save the world. The world will be saved because Jesus is the Savior of the world. It's not your job to save the world. It's not your job to change the world. That's the job of our Savior. The invitation of the kingdom is to simply belong to the world being changed by Jesus. Just belong to the world that Jesus is in the process of saving. You can't change the world, but Jesus can change your life. I believe that with all of my heart. You see, your task is changing the world. You're going to be frustrated and angry, disappointed, bitter, cynical. Maybe even lose all of your faith. Because you were going to change the world for Jesus, and the world didn't change, so you got disillusioned. No. You can't change the world, but Jesus can change your life. You can say it this way. You can't change the world, but Jesus can change your world. When we think it's our job to go out there and change the world, we end up reaching, grasping for things we should never possess. Things like Caesar's sword and Sauron's ring. We end up in the age-old quest for power and we tell ourselves, I'm going to do good with it. Give me the power. Give me the power. Make me king of the world. That's all I'm asking. Just put me in charge of everything and I'll do good with it. The age-old quest for power, let me tell you, that always ends up, one way or another, in bowing down to the devil. And it all begins with the mistaken notion that we're supposed to change the world. Change our life, yes, with the help of Jesus. But change the world? No, that's not our job. Our job is just to stay on the journey of slowly but surely becoming more like Jesus, and it happens about as fast as a tree grows. How long we lived at the house we were living in, Perry? I forgot. 22 years. We planted some trees when we built that house, and now they're pretty big. Not real big, but pretty big. They started small, you know. This is deep stuff here, folks. I've never seen any of the trees grow. I go, I spent a whole day just staring at them. They're not growing. They're not growing. But they do. Because they just stay planted. They just stay there. They just do the tree thing, you know, roots and soak up stuff and photosynthesis. They just, they just, and they grow. And so we just stay in the church. We stay with Jesus. We pray. We stay keep rooted in the scriptures. It's not dramatic. It's not sudden. It doesn't happen overnight. We don't turn into spiritual giants like that. No, it's just slow, but we grow. Let a few decades go by. Yeah, you, we're getting ready to celebrate 40 years here at Word of Life. You know, and more and more, I meet with young pastors they come with all of their questions. They look for sage advice. 
Here's the sage wisdom I'm going to start giving young pastors. I'm going to say, it's the first 40 years that are the hardest. (laughs) Get past that and this will be all right. Now our job is just to stay on the journey of slowly but surely becoming more and more like Jesus. Thus, prayer is more important than protest. These are your tweets. Prayer is more important than protest. Contemplation is more important than confrontation. We hear of something evil and we want to blame somebody. Maybe we need to sit with Jesus and contemplate, what am I supposed to do? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he ended up in this plight? He was born blind. Jesus said, that's the wrong question. You're, you're essentially asking the question, who can we blame? And the question is never, who can we blame, but how can we help? But to really help, you have to be contemplative. You have to sit quietly. Contemplation is more important than confrontation. Spiritual formation is more important than political activism. And the most essential work of all is to believe in Jesus. Then they said to Jesus, What must we do to perform the works of God? You know, you see, they're eager, they're zealous, they're passionate. They have imagination of doing some great work for God. How do we qualify, Jesus? We want to do works for God. How do we qualify? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. You just, Jesus, I believe that you're the Savior of the world. I believe that you're the Redeemer. I believe that you are Lord. You say, is that work? Uh Uh-huh. Because you are going to be bombarded Day after day, with supposed evidence that Jesus isn't saving the world, that it's not working, that it hasn't shown up, it's not here. Oh, well, might as well become an atheist. <laughs> now just keep believing in the one whom the Father has sent to save the world. His name is Jesus. You can't change the world but you can change your life. Now, this is where I should probably end the sermon, right there. But there is a secret. So I'm asking you, should I end the sermon right there, which is a perfectly good place to end it? Or should I tell you the secret? What do you want, Betty? Want me to end the sermon or you want me to tell the secret? Okay, I don't think you're Betty, but all right. (laughs) I was going to leave it up to Betty.
You can't change the world, but you can change your life. And that's how the world has changed. That actually is how the world has changed. You can't change the world, but you can change your life. And the secret is, that's really how the world has changed. When you change your life by believing in Jesus, you are changing the world. Hear me. When you change your life by believing in Jesus, you are changing the world. When we change our lives together by believing in Jesus, we are changing the world. But we have to keep our eyes on Jesus and keep the focus right here. See, this, you understand that out there, yeah, I know there's so much wrong, but that can be a terrible distraction. It's a way of avoiding it. I don't want to go work on what's wrong in here. The kingdom of God is not fully arrived yet right here. And I don't want to be bothered with that. So I project out there. That won't change the world. You can't change the world, but you can change your life. But by believing in Jesus and your life being changed, you're changing the world. But you have to keep your eyes on Jesus, not on results. You start focusing on results and that'll distract you. You've got to keep your eyes on Jesus and the focus on bringing the kingdom of God right here. If we focus on getting results, we'll compromise the kingdom of God within us and we won't change the world, we'll just become the world. You can't change the world, but you can change your life. Believe in Jesus. Amen. Stand up with me. I'd like us to respond to this sermon today by praying the prayer of St. Francis. All of the greatest world changers for Jesus knew the secret that you can't change the world. You can only change your life by believing in Jesus. And sometimes that can launch things that actually do change the world. From the spirit of St. Francis, we get this prayer. Pray this with me. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Now as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, join with me in our confession of sin. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. 
for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is merciful to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Our gospel this week, our gospel reading comes from John chapter 6, where Jesus says, Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that which your ancestors ate and they died. But the one who eats this bread shall live forever. This is the table. Not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.